When Russia is most effective is amplifying pre-existing doubts. And so it's not Russia's fault, principally, that there are worries about mail-in votes or other aspects of the U.S. election. Hello and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. You're listening to the third episode of our 2020 presidential election series. In this episode, we're discussing technology and its role in election interference from 2016 to this new election cycle. Since the 2016 election, Americans have been warned by their intelligence agencies that international actors, primarily Russia, have engaged in both cyber attacks and influence operations to attempt to sway the presidential elections. The Trump administration maintained a public denial of these claims, and as we enter the 2020 elections, has not changed its stance, despite reports of repeated interference. Joining us to discuss the continued rise of election interference is Mr. John Bateman. John Bateman is a fellow in the Cyber Policy Initiative of the Technology and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He previously held technology and strategy roles at the U.S. Department of Defense. Bateman most recently was special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph F. Dunford, Jr. He led strategic analysis within the chairman's internal think tank, including assessments of the technology industry, geopolitical competition, arms control, and military education. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Okay, well, Mr. Bateman, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Happy to be here. All right. So as you mentioned in an op-ed for The Hill, four years ago, we saw widespread concerns about Russian influence campaigns that have largely faded in the years since. So can you give us some context as to the types of technology and interference that were used to meddle in the 2016 elections? Sure. And Russia's activities in 2016 have really only come into uh, full clarity over time. I think in retrospect, we could break them down into what I would call five lines of effort. And if your listeners can imagine a spectrum on which we're going to plot these lines of effort, on one side would be cyber activities, meaning actually attempting to hack networks and computers. And on the other side is influence activities, meaning really targeting people's opinions and cognition. Um, And so there was everything across this entire spectrum. On the cyber realm, Russia sought to hack or compromise election infrastructure operated by state governments. This wasn't very successful, but it was very concerning for those who are aware of it. Then kind of half cyber, half influence, there were a couple significant episodes, the hack and leak of democratic emails, which many political observers thought had a major impact on the course of the campaign. And then some of these social media campaigns where Russia created fictitious personas to spread either false information or sensational opinion on social media. And then you had a couple things that had nothing to do with technology. Um, And this was Russian agents of access or influence seeking to create contacts with U.S. political figures in the Republican Party. Um, And then finally, some things very overtly happening with Russian state-sponsored media, like RT and Sputnik, um, commenting uh, very one-sidedly in the campaign and seeking to undermine uh, the legitimacy of the U.S. political system. So as we focus on, you know, as you call them, the cyber activities and the technology-based influence activities, would you say that since 2016, the technology to carry these actions out, has it improved since then? 
I wouldn't say the technology to carry these activities out has improved, but I would say that some of the counter efforts by tech platforms and the U.S. government have become more effective at a tactical level, and therefore the activity from Russia has evolved in response. Uh, so on the one hand, we see a continued emphasis by Russia in the use of its overt digital and traditional media platforms like RT and Sputnik to influence people. And then on the other side, some of this social media activity has evolved from completely fictitious personas pretending to be Americans to the actual co-optation of real human beings, generally unwitting, in America and occasionally in other countries. Uh, basically, Russia setting up false front journalistic outfits and then paying people to actually write articles about U.S. politics and world affairs in an attempt to influence uh, the U.S. discourse. Wow. Uh, was Russia the only U.S. adversary attempting to meddle in the 2016 elections? And you mentioned before, you know, what were these other countries that these false, you know, journalistic fronts were set up in? Uh, well, most prominently, Ghana is one. Uh, but uh, as far as the latter, where, where front organizations were set up to uh, create content. On the question of who else meddled in the 2016 election, I mean, we have to keep in mind the big picture that the United States is an open society and speech can be disseminated from any country with relative ease. That said, what Russia did was unique in terms of its quantity and quality of covert efforts to manipulate and undermine the election uh, in ways that other countries simply were not doing. The only other countries with significant involvement related to the election would be China and perhaps Iran. And much of that really was traditional espionage like the attempts to hack the email accounts of political figures, candidates, campaigns. And traditionally, that type of activity would be normal national security behavior by foreign adversaries seeking to get some advanced insight into the developing policies and politics of an incoming, incoming U.S. administration. Um, and actually, when Russia initially hacked emails of the Democratic Party and Clinton campaign in 2016, it was initially assumed that it was just normal espionage. Of course, now we know Russia's activity took a very different turn. But so far, uh, China's and Iran's has generally not, uh, with, with some small exceptions. So since the 2016 election, as we know, uh, President Trump has frequently contradicted his own intelligence agencies by denying any interference from Russia in his favor in the 2016 election. So what effect has this had on current attempts to protect the integrity of the 2020 U.S. elections? Well, the effect really cannot be understated. It's been catastrophic. And I would focus, first of all, on the effect of the adversaries themselves. President Trump refusing to endorse the narrative of Russia's activity has contributed to an atmosphere of impunity and even encouragement or perhaps solicitation of continued similar activities by Russia. And I think particularly after the entire Ukraine affair that led to President Trump's impeachment, there is a sense in which President Trump really is not seeking to deter adversaries, and that will affect their behavior. 
it also feeds into Russia's narrative that cyberspace is this kind of foggy wilderness where no one can really say who's doing what to whom and when. And if something happens online, it could be Russia, it could be China. As President Trump famously said, it could be a 400-pound hacker in his basement in New Jersey. That kind of fog of uncertainty and competing or conflicting narratives that suggest there's no such thing as a truthful objective authority on these matters is exactly what Russia seeks to instill in the American people so that when similar claims are made in the future, they're not believed. The other huge impact has been in terms of the U.S. government's response. Now, to some extent, the bureaucracy kind of grinds forward. There are people in the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, the intelligence community that are continuing to take tactical actions to disrupt this kind of activity. But when the man at the top of the government is actively undermining or ignoring these threats, that has a corrosive impact. And there have been terrible stories emerging about the intelligence community being told or learning not to brief the president on these threats or on the activities being taken place against them. And then finally, I would say a huge part of the U.S. response to this type of activity occurs at the political and societal levels. So things like, is Congress acting to bolster cybersecurity funds for the election? And because of the politicization of these matters, their response has been really limited. And similarly, is the intelligence community acting to inform the American people about these threats so that voters can be aware of them? And unfortunately, under President Trump, the intelligence community has become somewhat evasive and at times misleading in informing the American public about these threats. So bottom line, it's been catastrophic. Well, Mr. Bateman, I think I think what you just outlined is really important. Um, last week, we did a podcast on Trump foreign policy, which we'll be discussing later this month. Um, but this is also in the election election series. And basically our, our guest in that podcast argued that Trump's rhetoric should be kind of separated from his, from his actions. Um, and I think you just made good explanation as to why Trump's rhetoric has a true effect on, on, you know, various aspects of us foreign policy, specifically in regards to deterring Russian actions and election interference and us policy towards Russia. I want to move though to, um, an idea that you touched on earlier, which is you you said that social media platforms since 2016 have gotten better at preventing the spread of misinformation. Um, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. What have social media platforms actually done to kind of curb, curb these efforts? Sure. Well, uh, there's been quite a lot of activity from Facebook, Twitter, and other platforms across almost all possible um, categories of response. Um, so there's been a significant investment in the content moderation workforce and a maturation of policies on what is allowed and not allowed in platforms. Uh, the teams that actually follow state-sponsored manipulation activity are in general larger and more experienced and more empowered than they were before. Uh, there have also been structural changes in the platforms themselves, like Facebook altered its news feed so that it's more oriented toward friends and family and less toward uh, election or political news writ large. 
Uh, other changes, limiting types of advertisements, labeling state-sponsored media, improved fact-checking. So there's been a lot that's been done. What I would say on the effectiveness is that there have been tactical successes. So many more Russian influence operation campaigns and those of other countries on a variety of topics have been caught and exposed earlier disrupted at a stage where they hadn't yet accumulated significant influence in the U.S. target population. But as it's generally said, the generals always fight the last war. The platforms have been largely effective at fighting that last war, fighting the war against coordinated manipulation by foreign governments. And I would just tell your listeners that Despite all of this activity, the overall threat is much higher than it was in 2016 for two main reasons, both of which have little to do with the tech platforms. The first is that U.S. society and our body politic is far more susceptible to malign influence because the root causes, the conditions that allow this activity to succeed are fundamentally political distrust, disunity, polarization, high emotional affect, negativity, all of those things are at fever pitch right now. And then the other way is that the threat has magnified. So Russia is just as active as it was in 2016. But now adding to that, many of the key and most concerning misinformation and influence, kind of illegitimate influence targeting the U.S. election is coming from domestic political sources. People like President Trump and others who are perpetuating false narratives very explicitly about the integrity of the election. That, at the end of the day, is a far more potent and prolific source of informational threats to the U.S. election. And it's much, much harder for platforms and certainly for the bureaucrats in the U.S. government to combat. So recently we've seen that deepfakes and doctored media have been a rising concern, especially, you know, since 2017. U.S. politicians like Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump have already been targets of viral videos that have been doctored. So at the moment, should we consider deepfakes a legitimate threat to the democratic process? I would call deepfakes more of an emerging threat, uh, because on the one hand, they are extremely powerful tools of deception. Uh, They can show you types of material that up until now to fabricate or falsify a compelling video reproduction or audio reproduction of a particular person, that would require significant resources, kind of Hollywood-level post-production. But now that's actually possible to do much more easily and much more readily. But on the other hand, deep fakes do not yet have the same kind of cost efficiency as other much simpler tools of deception and disinformation. Uh, Things like just posting viral content or social media or uh, posting a photograph of one place and time and claiming that it's something else with a misleading caption. Uh, There was the famous Nancy Pelosi video, which is often described as a cheap fake, actually, in that unlike your traditional deep fake videos, it's not using sophisticated AI technology to fabricate new video content. Rather, it's just crude editing techniques, slowing or chopping something up Uh, to make the person appear to be acting differently than they were. That kind of stuff is actually very effective and very cheap. Um, So at this point, 
deep fakes in a political sense have not yet emerged as the full election threat that people fear that they could someday become. So given that there's still an emerging threat, as of right now, what steps should platforms or should individuals take to ensure that deep fakes or cheap fakes aren't disseminated to a massive audience, if any are even possible? There's quite a bit that can be done, and some of this is being explored by the key stakeholders, including tech platforms, governments, journalists, civil society, educators. There are a lot of people that have a role to play in this. And I would just break it down into four kind of steps in a sequence. Each step is a place where we might seek to intervene. Uh, The first is actually the development of deepfakes. Are there controls being put in some of the software that's being widely disseminated? Uh, Watermarks, limitations on resolution, uh, perhaps some of the key technologies might remain commercially controlled, uh, or even ethical conversations that are happening within the research community about what type of research should be publicly disclosed uh, versus held in reserve if there's significant malicious consequences. Then you mentioned the second place where we might intervene, the the dissemination of a deep fake or other type of false media. And this is where the tech platforms are key. But not only them, you can think about getting a deep fake in your email, in your text message, uh, or how something could go viral on social media and then be echoed through traditional media. So there's a lot of levers there. Uh, Then the third step is the viewer, when the viewer actually sees something and decides what to believe. And here, education and a real cultural shift towards skepticism of digital media is going to be important. And finally, there's a sense in which the victim has their say as well. If you're a campaign or a candidate who's been smeared or besmirched in a deep fake, once it's gone viral, you have a role to play in kind of counterprogramming or diffusing that narrative. And so I think campaigns are starting to put some building blocks or plans in place to respond to a deep fake event. Although in the broad scheme of things that campaigns worry about, it's still just one small scenario. So I want to follow up on one of the points that you made with a culture shift towards, you know, a culture of skepticism. So recently we've seen just among the American public, a lot of, you know, push and pull towards this idea of fake news and which news platforms to believe, whether it be, you know, news that's written, network news, different types of biases between these different platforms. If we were to shift towards a culture of skepticism towards the information that we receive, how would Americans be able to verify the information that they receive from journalists as being true? You know, that's a great question. And I think it's too simplistic for me to frame it in terms of skepticism. I think the better way to frame it is encouraging people to become sophisticated consumers of information. And that doesn't actually look like a totalizing skepticism. That is what Russia and many of the malign actors want, to just get people to be cynical and decide there's no way to know who to believe, let alone the the credible authorities. I think the better approach is to get people to distinguish between credible and non-credible sources of information. And to some extent, that's happened, right? Um, I mean, different types of forgeries and fakes and lies have been possible for a long time and have always been part of politics and public debate and discourse. 
Um, it's possible to forge someone's email or to doctor a photo. These technologies are, are decades and they have analogies that are, are centuries old. And for the most part, people have learned that there are ways to vet. And a lot of that vetting involves trust. You designate certain institutions like you know, a credible journalistic outfit. And you say, you know what? This outfit has a track record and a methodological rigor that I can trust it. Now, much of the problem today is that the American people is increasingly fractured in who it can trust. And some of these institutions, like the U.S. government, have contributed to the decline in their own public trust. So on a wide scale, not only do we need to teach people to be more savvy consumers of information, but we need to actually make our information authorities more credible than in some cases they are. Mr. Bateman, I, I think that's a fascinating point um, regarding inf- information authorities, because, you know, previously one would think that the most credible source, I mean, I, I guess maybe this is debatable, would be the president themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, obviously there's been complications in the past about presidents lying to the American people um, in many cases, but I guess that's kind of the general idea is that the president mm-hmm. should be someone you should believe in. So I don't know. It seems interesting to me that like President Trump has been repeatedly fact-checked by social media platforms for disseminating false information. And I, th- I feel like that has huge effects for, you know, information credibility and being able to trust, you know, being able to figure out who is a trustworthy source. Well, I think that observation is spot on, if I may just say, all politicians dissemble and shade the truth, and U.S. presidents have participated in this. But there has never been anything like President Trump. And the system is not designed to cope with this. And when I say the system, that includes tech platforms. If you think about Facebook, for example, you know they are not just a tech platform. They're a major company with a lot of business before the U.S. government. You can look to just this week when the House committee unveiled this new report on antitrust matters. Facebook wants to maintain at least friendly relations with the leader of the free world. They have no choice. Any major company would. But that greatly complicates their ability to then treat that person as a user of their platform, let alone as actually an an adversary within the system of rules that Facebook has set up, where to a great extent, a leading political figure can become a malign actor. Well, in that same vein, Mr. Bateman, I want to ask you about the kind of discussion and fear-mongering is how I would put it, of mail-in voting um, Mm -hmm. in, in this election cycle. Is you know, we've seen that from the president himself. Um, we've seen that from other think tanks, et cetera, you know, sources. Um, I, I'm wondering, does this kind of, you know, sowing, sowing, I don't know what the right word is here, but like casting distrust on the mail-in voting system, does that present vulnerabilities that can be exploited by malign actors like Russia? Absolutely. Distrust and doubt are the grounds, the fertile grounds on which Russians and others can sow doubts. Now, what I would say here, though, is that 
When Russia is most effective is amplifying pre-existing doubts. And so it's not Russia's fault, principally, that there are worries about mail-in votes or other aspects of the U.S. election. These are doubts being sowed by our own leaders and within our own society. And I would also say that there are many valid concerns about the legitimacy of the 2020 election, not necessarily mail-in votes in terms of fraud, um, but in terms of disenfranchisement, electoral chaos, uncertain outcomes, uh, extra constitutional behavior by the president, political violence, and even some kind of failed transition or self-coup. These things are all actually credible fears. And so that's the kind of thing that can be very skillfully exploited and amplified by bad faith actors. Mr. Bateman, I want to switch gears back to back to 2016, and then we can bring it back to 2020, where basically the Russian government still denies that they um, hacked the DNC servers mm. or played any role in election interference. So given that, and there is this kind of amount of like doubt that they can sow on these uh, on these activities um, because of the kind of lack of transparency in terms of the government, you know, showing evidence, e- even though, I mean, the Mueller report was a huge, <laughs> huge uh, showing of evidence on this behalf. But mm-hmm. so I'm wondering how, like, if there is this kind of doubt that Russia can cast upon their own actions, how, how does the United States hold them accountable? And is that even possible? Well, the first point that I'd want to make here is that it is often possible, and in this case, definitely was possible to determine that Russia was responsible for these actions. Uh, Not only the the Mueller report laid this out in extraordinary detail, but prior to that, there was a somewhat unprecedented public unveiling of a U.S. intelligence community assessment that came to the same overarching conclusions. And then following, there were a number of bipartisan reports by both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate Intelligence Committee that essentially confirmed the substance and process that went into these assessments and held them up as gold standards, even to the point of interviewing analysts, asking about political influence or the analytic integrity of the process. So I would say in this case, we do know. what does it take to then actually hold Russia accountable? Um, one thing that it often takes is the will to do so. Once you've come to that conclusion that Russia, Russia was responsible, what then? And th- the truth is the U.S. government has never put this issue at the very top of its bilateral agenda with Russia. It's, it's absolutely been a source of major friction. And under President Trump, that's not necessarily been at the presidential level. But I think if you look back at the history of US-Russia interactions in the last four years, we've done a lot more to punish Russia for its actions abroad in Syria, in Ukraine, uh, human rights violations under the Global Magnitsky Act, or um, the chemical weapons attacks in Europe. And we've done somewhat less to punish Russia for the influence they've had on their own democracy or on the democratic processes of our close allies. So Mr. Bateman, you also recently wrote a very good report for Carnegie about the complexities of considering cyber attacks an act of war. That was at least a part of it. 
So is it possible for the mass spread of misinformation with the intent of affecting an election? So not necessarily one of the cyber activities we were talking about earlier, but influence activities. Could those be considered an act of war? Hmm. Well, the application of international law to cyberspace is a very contested terrain. And you will hear a lot of disputes among scholars and certainly among nations and diplomats. I think probably the general answer here would be that the mass spread of misinformation by itself would not be considered an act of war, but it could conceivably be considered a violation of other international law principles. But the more relevant question is not whether abstractly it's an act of war, but whether concretely national leaders choose to treat it as a hostile act of supreme importance and then take action to hold those other states accountable. All right. And how will the current administration's broad contradictions of U.S. intelligence findings, you know, as we've already discussed, how will those affect future efforts to combat interference, maybe whether in a Trump presidency or in a Biden presidency? Hmm. I think all of the things that we talked about before will have cast a long shadow, so to speak. Um, the notion, again, that who's to say who's doing what in cyberspace uh, is very much against U.S. interests. Uh, keep in mind, the U.S. intelligence community is one of the most capable institutions in the world. And I can say this from personal experience in terms of attributing or identifying those responsible for cyber and online influence activity. And so for the leader of the U.S. government to then be going out and saying, you know what, you can't always trust this stuff. And I take President Putin's word for it. Those statements will be used by others over time to question future attributions that the U.S. intelligence community and government make for future influence act actions and, and cyber activity. And, and that is eroding the general effort that the U.S. government should be joining on behalf of other countries to somehow civilize cyberspace and create a sense of accountability for what nations are doing. All right. And just to close this out, Mr. Bateman, so, you know, during this discussion, we've talked about skepticism, cheap fakes, deep fakes, long-term efforts like better voter education to make sure that the American public isn't necessarily affected by some of these efforts by foreign actors. So for the voters among our listenership, is there any other way that you think they as individuals can take accountability in 2020 as we're all voting by mail and as we're making the decision whether to vote at the polls or by mail and ballot, what can they do to make sure that this is not an election in which they're influenced, whether mm. by the Russian government or necessarily by domestic actors? Mm. I think I would offer two pieces of advice. Uh, the first is be a savvy consumer of political information. And what I mean by that is think about your own political views and opinions as akin to other very serious matters in your personal life. Imagining, for example, buying a house, right? Huge milestone for many Americans. And because they understand the gravity of that, they're going to treat it with care. They're going to consult multiple sources of information. They're going to consider the credibility and motivations of people who are telling them things about the house or the neighborhood. 
And above all, they're really going to pause, uh, talk things through, and act based on facts rather than emotions. People need to think about their own political views as that serious and treat it with the same weight that they treat things in their own personal lives. And in a very fragile moment in our democracy, that's more important now than ever. My other piece of advice is remember that you are no longer just a consumer of information. In the digital age, you are also a publisher. Everything that you share online is, in some sense, you amplifying that information. And I think many people underestimate the extent to which their friends and family look at the person's posts and assume that person has vetted or endorsed the information. So I would say share wisely and think about yourself as a publisher with some obligation for due diligence in terms of how you're actually contributing to the political discourse in this country. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this discussion, Mr. Bateman. All of this information is something I think definitely we and our listeners should reflect on, especially heading into November 3rd. Awesome. It's been great to be on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. As a reminder, all of the opinions expressed in this episode are those of the hosts and the guests and not of Johns Hopkins University. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.